From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Here are the stories we're following today. We begin with the first major winter storm to hit the East Coast so far this season. Let's get the very latest on that with Bloomberg meteorologist Rob Carroll and Rob. Nathan, the weekend storm is going to be worse to the north and west of the district in Baltimore and also north and west of New York City and north and west of Boston. Uh, the major cities are going to see some mixing with rain, and that's going to hold down the accumulations. But it's the areas to the north and west that are going to do quite well where it stays all snow, three to five inches possible north and west of the district in Baltimore, while north and west of New York City, as much as five to eight inches will fall. We could see as much as five to ten inches of snow north and west of Boston during the storm. Okay, Rob, so when do you expect this wintry weather is going to end? Storm's going to wind down during the evening and overnight hours in the district in Baltimore. In New York City, it comes to an end Sunday afternoon. The Boston area, we'll see it ending late Sunday night, early Monday morning. And we should see quite a bit of an improvement weather-wise into Monday of next week. Okay, Rob Carolyn, thanks for that. We'll be checking back with you for more on this East Coast winter storm throughout the day. Well, we now turn to the crucial jobs report for the month of December. Nathan, it's forecast to show 175,000 jobs were added last month. And we get more from Bloomberg's Michael McKee. Wall Street goes into today's jobs report expecting strength in hiring and wages. That was not what the Fed was expecting a few months ago. The central bankers want job growth of about 100,000 a month and unemployment in the fours to signal an easing of labor market inflation pressures. Instead, they're likely to get a continuing conundrum, a strong labor market but falling inflation, making it hard to know the best path for interest rates. They will probably focus on the composition of jobs. Some analysts say job growth should be concentrated in low-wage sectors like healthcare assistance and restaurants, and that will be the sign the Fed wants that the economy is slowing. Michael McKee, Bloomberg Radio. All right, Mike, thanks. Well, the options market's been a buzz ahead of the jobs report. There is a large bearish wager underway on yields rising to 4.15% by the end of the day. That would mark the biggest one-day rise in 10-year yields since late March. It would be a further retrenchment for Treasuries following last year's furious two-month rally. And checking the 10-year right now, it is at 4.03%. Well, Nathan, rates are also in focus overseas. Traders are pairing bets on cuts from the European Central Bank. Let's go to London and get the latest from Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Hi, Ewan. Karen and Nathan, it's the first time since mid-December that traders are betting on fewer than six quarter-point rate reductions from the ECB. At the end of last year, the market was pricing in as much as 174 basis points of cuts. That number has now slipped below 150 basis points. And key data this morning shining more light on the inflation picture. Euro area CPI coming in at 2.9% in the year to December. That's a higher number than the previous month as energy subsidies expire in a number of countries. In London, you 
Sean Potts, Bloomberg Radio. All right, Ewan, thank you. Now we turn to the latest developments in the Middle East. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is returning to the region, his fourth trip since the October 7th attack on Israel. Bloomberg's Amy Morris reports from Washington. There is a risk the war between Israel and Hamas can spread into a broader regional conflict. This trip is part of U.S. efforts to prevent that. Secretary Blinken will travel to Turkey, Jordan, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Israel. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says they don't expect some of these conversations to be easy. We want to prevent the conflict from spreading, but part of that means that people need to stop taking strikes against our soldiers. And if they take strikes against our soldiers, we're going to do what we need to protect ourselves. Groups backed by Iran have escalated attacks across Iraq, Syria, Lebanon and Yemen. And armed forces in Iraq are also warning of a, quote, dangerous escalation after a U.S. strike killed a senior commander in an Iran-backed militia. In Washington, Amy Morris, Bloomberg Radio. All right, Amy, thanks. Meanwhile, the Islamic State group has claimed responsibility for the two explosions that killed almost 100 people in Iran. The attacks risked inflaming tensions further in the Middle East, with Iran saying it had been targeted because of its stance on Israel. Bloomberg's Henry Meyer looks at the impact of the Islamic State taking responsibility for the attacks. It's significant in the sense that it reduces you know, the risks of uh, more confrontation between Israel and Iran. You know, Iran had said that the blasts were the work of people who were trying to punish it for its stance on the Israeli offensive in Gaza. And, you know, obviously any suspicion of Israeli involvement uh, could have proved extremely explosive. And Bloomberg's Henry Meyer notes U.S. officials said from the start the attacks had the hallmark of a group such as Islamic State. Back here in the U.S., Karen, there's more fallout over the resignation of former Harvard president Claudine Gay. The Reverend Al Sharpton led a protest at Bill Ackman's Manhattan offices yesterday. The civil rights activist says the billionaire investor's campaign against Gay is a blow to the diversity, equity and inclusion movement. Gay stepped down as Harvard's first black president this week in a backlash over her handling of campaign campus anti-Semitism and accusations of plagiarism. Meantime, Nathan Business Insider is reporting Bill Ackman's wife, Neri Oxman, plagiarized multiple sections of her doctoral dissertation at MIT. Ackman responded to the report in a post on X, writing, you know you struck a chord when they go after your wife. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making news around the world. For that, we're joined by Bloomberg's Amy Morris. Amy, good morning. Good morning, Karen. Residents in the small town of Perry, Iowa, held a vigil last night, hours after a gunman opened fire at the local high school, killing a sixth grader and wounding four other students and the school's principal. Andrea Niemeyer is a 2004 alumna at the school, and she spoke at last night's vigil. We're going to rally around our survivors, our community, our teachers, our first responders. And we're going to show them what we've shown them every day for as long as I've known, that we appreciate them, enjoy them, respect them, and dare I say, love them. The suspect, identified as 17-year-old Dylan Butler, a student at Perry High School, also died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. Classes are canceled throughout the school district for today. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley held back-to-back CNN town halls in Iowa last night as they fight to be primary GOP presidential challenger to Donald Trump who already has a huge lead in the polls. DeSantis called Haley a phony who is, quote, playing for voters who are not even core Republicans. I'm the only one that has a chance to beat Trump and win the general election. Nikki Haley can't get conservative voters. She's the darling of the never Trumpers. 
While in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley said of the primary process, quote, Iowa starts it, New Hampshire corrects it. So she responded to criticism about that comment during CNN's town hall in Iowa. We're going to continue to be here. I mean, I've told people get used to this face and I've been here over and over again. But if I didn't love Iowa, I wouldn't keep coming to Iowa. While they did take jabs at each other, Haley and DeSantis also focused their attacks on frontrunner Donald Trump. And next week will be a busy one for Trump. Bloomberg's Nancy Lyons reports. Donald Trump has two major court hearings next week. One of them is in Washington on his claim of immunity from charges he overturned the 2020 election. That's set for January 9th. Then two days later, he's planning to attend the closing arguments in Manhattan. That's for the New York civil trial against him and his sprawling real estate company. Days after that, the nominating process begins with the January 15th Iowa caucuses. Then a day after that, a civil defamation case against Trump begins in New York, in which E. Jean Carroll is seeking $12 million in damages. It's unknown if Trump will be attending that trial. In Washington, Nancy Lyons, Bloomberg Radio. Global news 24 hours a day and whenever you want it with Bloomberg News Now. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. Karen. All right, Amy, thanks. I'll be to bring in news throughout the day right here on Bloomberg Radio. But now, as Amy said, you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want it. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now. You can get the latest headlines right at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, but also Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Now for the Bloomberg Sports Update. Here's John Stashauer. John. Karen, what a game in San Francisco. Battle of the last two NBA champions. The Warriors had an 18-point lead in the fourth quarter on the Nuggets. And then Denver closed the game on a 25-4 run and won at 130-127 thanks to Kola Jokic. 34 points, 10 assists, 9 rebounds. He hit the game tying shot. And then after a Steph Curry turnover, he hit the game winner, a 40-footer that he banked in at the buzzer. Milwaukee won at San Antonio, 125-121. to This was the first time that Giannis Antetokounmpo won against the guy that many feel plays like Giannis, Victor Wembanyama. Giannis scored 44 points. Wembanyama scored 27. Ricky Rubio retiring at age 33, 12 years in the NBA, played for four teams, most recently Cleveland, who bought out his contract. He was a professional player in Spain at the age of 14. Bruins lost at home to Pittsburgh, 6-5. Sidney Crosby won it for the Penguins, a power play goal in the third period. The Red Sox traded Chris Sale to Atlanta. He just got a two-year extension with the Braves for $38 million, despite all the injuries he's had in recent years. Week 18 of the NFL starts tomorrow. Nine teams have clinched playoff spots. Five spots still up for grabs. Buffalo, Jacksonville, Tampa Bay, and Green Bay are in with Week 18 victories. The winner tomorrow night between Houston and Indianapolis is in the playoffs. Pittsburgh tomorrow needs a win and then a Buffalo loss on Sunday night. John Stashauer, Bloomberg Sports. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. 
From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business App, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. Well, the first weekend of 2024 is going to bring the East Coast the first major winter storm we've seen in quite a while, actually. Uh, so let's bring in uh, Bloomberg meteorologist Rob Carolyn to help us get set for what's coming. Uh, what you looking at, Rob? Uh, the first accumulating snow of the season for lots of us. It's taken a time for winter to get going, but it's going to get going now with gangbusters, uh, Nathan. Storm coming out of the lower Mississippi River Valley is going to come up the along the East Coast uh, during the weekend, and it's going to bring a sizable snowfall to uh, many of the suburban locations around the major cities in the mid-Atlantic and Northeast. This isn't a huge snowstorm for the District of Baltimore or for New York City or Boston because the ocean is still fairly warm. Water temperatures are in the 40s. That influence is going to mean that we see Boston and New York City and especially Washington and Baltimore mixing with and changing the rain at times. But once you get inland away from that influence of the ocean, there's going to be some sizable snowfalls uh, from, say, Frederick, Maryland, all the way on up uh, through uh, the suburbs north and west of New York City and then well north and west of Boston. Uh, There could be some spots that get over 10 inches of snow from this storm. No kidding. Uh, So like you said, it's been a while since we've had uh, a major winter storm along the East Coast. I mean, are, are we ready for this? I think we're ready. I mean, we've had a lot of practice. Anybody over the age of 15 has seen, you know, a number of no st- uh, snowstorms <laughs> in their lifetime. But yeah, last winter, I think the uh, deepest snow we saw in the Boston area was like three and a half inches in February. So I think the big problem is going to be people not used to driving in it because it's been over a year. The good news is it's falling on a Saturday night and a Sunday in many areas. So their traffic won't be as bad. We don't have school in session. So that'll be helpful. Uh, but uh, people are definitely going to have to, you know, take some time, uh, particularly in those areas where there's going to be that transition from a mixture of rain and snow to snow because that snow will be heavier and wetter. Therefore, it's more slippery. It's greasy. So those areas just north and west of Boston, New York City, Washington and Baltimore really need to be careful uh, with the precipitations falling during Sunday, uh, Saturday afternoon through uh, Sunday. Well, a lot of people who live along the Interstate 95 corridor know that that freeway is often uh, the right along the, the line boundary. between where rain and snow happens. I mean, if this system uh, sticks around for a little bit longer than expected, could we be in for a, a pretty dicey Monday morning commute? I think Monday morning is going to be okay, particularly in the district in Baltimore, because it dries out Sunday afternoon. Um, so I think the roadways are going to be okay. New York City, Boston, different story. Those areas where they don't get a chance to clean up the slush along the I-95 corridor, temperatures are going to be going down Sunday night, and that's going to have the tendency to allow those surfaces to refreeze. So it could be a little bit more dicey New York City on up in the Boston Monday than it is around the district in Baltimore. Since it is on the weekend, are we thinking good skiing? Uh, well, you know, the ski areas in northern New England and northern New York State really aren't going to see much from this storm at all. Ah. It's be too far out to sea. Okay. It'll be cold enough so they can make some snow. Where this is going to help out is the resorts uh, in West Virginia and on up into Pennsylvania. They'll do fairly well. The Poconos are going to do great. Um, this is going to be their best snowfall in a while. Um, and they'll have, you know, real good uh, conditions uh, come uh, Monday and Tuesday in the Poconos. But uh, for northern New England, northern New York State, I think the snowfall amounts are probably going to be under two inches. 
Well, at any rate, I guess this couldn't have come at a better time happening on the weekend. But uh, thanks for this, Rob. Again, that was uh, Bloomberg meteorologist Rob Carolyn uh, getting us ready for the uh, first winter storm for the East Coast of 2024. Well, let's move on from watching the weather to watching the data. Investors have their eyes out for the last look at the U.S. labor market in 2023 with the December non-farm payrolls report due out at 8.30 a.m. Wall Street time. Here to get us set for those numbers, Simon French, chief economist at Pan. Amir Gordon. Simon, great to speak with you uh, this morning. Now, the consensus on the Bloomberg terminal calls for more moderation, 175,000 new jobs expected, a tick up for the unemployment rate to 3.8%. What's your expectation? I think a little bit stronger. Good morning, Nathan. Um, I think the the big question for me is U.S. labor market participation appeared to peak during the summer and come back down. But there's conflicting data points as to whether that labor supply picture is is true. And if we start to see some more people coming back into the labor market, I think there's a potential to still add more jobs than uh, than than that, that estimate suggests. I think the big influence, though, for... Uh, for futures on interest rate expectations will be the unemployment rate rather than the number of jobs added. And that, I think, when you're looking at the kind of rules of thumb we sort of saw the Federal Reserve allude to in their recent minutes, um, anything 3.8, 3.9 will start to firm expectations of a rate cutting cycle this side of the mid-year. There's been a lot of talk about 4% potentially being the trigger point for the Federal Reserve to Mm. think about cutting interest rates further. Could we see an upside surprise? What's the potential for that? Well, I think 4% is being focused in on by a lot of analysts because of the farm rule. This is the, the, uh, if you like, the equivalent in the labor market for what we know on the bond market from a yield curve inversion is a decent signal of a a recession. The SARM rule looking at a 0.5% increase on the 12-month low point for unemployment. And that would, something like 4% would take you there. But you have to get there on a three-month average, and we're not going to get that even if we get that print today. But what it would do is it would suggest that by February, the time of the February report, you potentially hit that SARM rule threshold, which could prepare the ground for a rate cutting cycle in Q2. So that is why I think analysts are focusing on 4%. Now, of course, we're going to be uh, keeping an eye out for average hourly earnings as well. Uh, labor force participation pay, uh, feeds into that as well. Where do you see wages going if uh, if we find evidence that uh, companies are holding on to employees or perhaps uh, more people are coming off the sidelines? Yeah, so I think there's a. I think one of the failures actually of the economics profession in the last couple of years has been an inability to recognise that nominal pay awards um, take their cue from overall price inflation, and therefore I think the helpful price dynamics from gasoline prices, from overall prices coming down in the U.S. economy or their rate of increase coming down, should have a spillover effect into nominal uh, wage awards. I think there's an over focus perhaps too model-driven from the way central banks model this stuff, to look purely at participation and capacity rather than the signals coming from the overall price level. So I actually expect a continued moderation in, uh, in nominal pay awards. With the quits rate and job openings falling as well, what does that tell us, uh, Simon, about the state of the U.S. economy? Are, are you still thinking that we could uh, be in for a soft landing given where uh, labor dynamics are right now? 
Uh, Nathan, I think you know I'm not a fan particularly of the soft landing, hard landing uh, descriptor, mainly because analysts, economists, they tend to define it as they, they see fit to reverse fit their narrative. But if you're looking at a moderation of those jolts data points on quits, on hires, from some very, very extreme levels, and a moderation without overshooting, then actually that's the message we got from the jolts data, I felt, which is you are starting to hone in on more normalized levels of labor market churn. And that has to be a positive thing. Whether it's a soft landing or a hard landing in terms of the hard data or economic activity, pass. But on those metrics, it's quite encouraging from the Federal Reserve they've been able to engineer this. We've uh, seen a lot of activity in the options market ahead of this report. A pretty big bet that we could see 10-year yields rise more than 10 basis points by the end of the day. What kind of volatility are you expecting uh, off the back of this jobs report in the the, uh, bond market? Um, So I think that's... That would be my, whether it's a, an hourly, end-of-day expectation, a sort of more medium-term view from my perspective, is that the bond market has got overexcited by the pace of potential rate cuts, in my view. I think pricing in 5-6 for the year, when it's unlikely the fair firms are going to have enough data to start cutting before the middle towards the back end of Q2, that becomes a really difficult thing to do with only four Federal Reserve meetings in the second half of the year. So I think that expectation that you allude to of slightly firming yield is consistent with perhaps a reassessment of quite how aggressive the Fed can be given the data they have in front of them. Got about uh, a minute left here, Simon. Uh, Not only is uh, the Fed going to be focused on the labor market, but we've got uh, inflation data, more inflation data coming out uh, next week as well. Uh, What's your expectation on where we could see consumer prices headed? Well, a lot of the base effects that have been driving U.S. inflation lower over the last 12 months, and this is simply some very exceptional numbers leaving leaving the annual comparison, that does mean we're in for a period where the data is going to bounce around in a sort of stubborn stubborn range, you know, around, around 3%. And, and the question, I guess, the Federal Reserve need to ask themselves, not all just based on the data, but their understanding of how price setting is going on at district level as well, is the degree to which that can, over an 18-month, two-year view, moderate back towards 2%, as their central forecasts suggest, but actually, the real economy is not necessarily showing those signs. So I think we're in for a period where month to month we'll dot around slightly uncomfortably higher levels than the 2% target. Um, and that is consistent with what we're seeing in terms of commodity input prices, shipping rates, providing less of a, a downward base effect push that we've seen for the last 12 months. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed at 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 99.1 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.